We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. He served two terms as Chicago's 55th mayor after serving the USA's 44th president. Now that he's out of City Hall, he's thinking about the power and influence wielded by the people in the city halls all over the world. And of course, he's surveying the political landscape because, well, that's what he does. This week, it's a conversation with Rahm Emanuel. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. Former Mayor Rahm Emanuel is my guest this weekend. He's been making the rounds over the last couple of weeks. Well, for one thing, he's a regular commentator on the TV networks. For another thing, he has a new book coming out. It's on a topic he's learned quite a bit about, mayors. It's called The Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. It's published by Knopf, and this is a good time, actually, to talk about some of the ideas in it. We're going to talk about those ideas and more in this half hour. We are recording this interview at the Taylor Street Library and Apartments. Rahm Emanuel, uh, thanks for being back on the program. Thanks for having me, Craig. Um, you don't look at day old through the last nine months, man. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I feel like I've aged more because, you know, as you know, uh, new mayors can be really uh, tiring, but, but fun. Uh, anyway, uh, congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Uh, and let's talk about the overall theme because, uh, you know, when it comes to meeting the challenges of urban America, cities are where the innovations are coming from. And, and, and I think that's, that's pretty much your point uh, and, and often out of necessity. Yeah, well... One of the things I talk about is, you know, we're sitting here at the uh, Taylor Street Library uh, that was part of three libraries where we did public housing, mixed income housing, great architecture, and a neighborhood library, which had never been done. And this one, Seoul, South Korea has already come to study. Montreal, Canada has already come to study. Houston has come to study. And when I say study, they're probably all going to do replications or variations of this. So it captures a couple ideas. One, this is something that's new going on and uh, across cities across the country. And the center of gravity of politics and innovation are happening at the local level, not national level. And ideas no longer go from uh, Chicago up to Washington. They go from Chicago to Seoul, South Korea, to Montreal, to Houston, Texas, where people copy each other and replicate. Same thing, uh, because we're in the shadows of it, of Malcolm X, the Chicago Star Scholarship that we create in Chicago, free community college. There's eight cities now in the United States of America who are all doing a variation of what we started in Chicago. And the sad thing, while I'm very proud, 8,000 kids have gotten a chance to go to college for free without burdening their family with debt, and 81% of those kids are the first in their family to go to college. The federal, it's not the most innovative in the last 20 years, but it's in the top five. Um, and, and we should point out, it didn't start here. 
I mean, this was wasn't it? This no, was, it was another. It was this Tennessee, was an idea. No, Tennessee and Chicago started at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay, no Secretary of Education has asked any of the mayors or any of the states for, about this. B, no member of Congress has asked for a hearing on it, and you'd have to put in the top here, uh, 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 top, as I said, five innovative education ideas the last twenty years. And if you think, which there's been a lot of writing on this that a high school degree as a bare minimum is what you provide that and that it's not sufficient and you need at least two more years of education you would think washington would say okay to boston to chicago to denver and to san francisco and to louisville kentucky what have you learned what's working that or gone to tennessee kentucky etc none of that is happening and so when you take a step back the innovation it's happening at the local level. The positive, affirmative kind of changes is happening at the local level. We've gone through this before where cities take the uh, lead, but what's different this time besides on transportation, education, or libraries and parks, et cetera, cities now are now doing things like immigration, climate change, income inequality or inclusive economic growth, research centers, things that used to always be the real estate of the national government, Mayors are now taking more and more of that. And I use one example. Mayor Bloomberg created a research center in, off of Roosevelt Island. We're creating a research center that uh, Governor Rauner and I pushed to get done, and they just announced they're going forward on it, and they've assembled a three-quarters of a billion dollars to do that. That used to be only the federal government. That was not the pur- purview or the real estate of a local government. But you have to do this thing, otherwise your city, your residents will fall farther behind. And then the challenge for cities like on inclusive economic growth, is making sure everybody has a chance at that success. Um, when did it first strike you that, uh, I mean, were you already a mayor bef- before you realized that, that this shift had You know, I obviously, um, when I decided to leave President Obama's side as his chief of staff, realized that something was happening besides the lure of an open mayoralty in Chicago. I think while being mayor, and then watching what was going on, um, it only crystallized the thought. And I, uh, as you know, one of the f- first things I talk about is, you know, 50 years ago during the height of the Great Society under Lyndon Johnson, cities are burning, people are fleeing. He try he comes up with the model cities and gives it away and creates Head Start. Fast forward to President Obama, he wants to do universal full day pre K, similar to Head Start, but for every child, uh, and. John Boehner is the Speaker of the House, uh, Republican, former chairman of the Education Committee. He says, not a, not a chance. And what does President Obama do? He doesn't take no for an answer, so he calls in, creates a White House conference on early childhood education, brings 200 mayors together and says, okay, you get this done. Now, 50 years earlier, Lyndon Johnson says, you guys can't do anything. Let me do this for you. <laughs> and it tells you the switch that happens. And um, now, did I predict when I decided, okay, I'm going to write a book about this as a student of politics as a student of urban policy did i see that the mayor of london would become the prime minister of england did i see that the last three standing uh candidates in the democratic primary would all be mayors no but it does i think at least illustrate that one of the things i'm trying to scratch at uh is occurring in real time as the book is coming out um is that That's my mother's way of saying that I was prescient. <laughs> yes. Um, what I do, I, I would think, though, that 
because of the way mayors are, that some of the network for sharing mm-hmm. um, is kind of built in just because of the, the, the associations that mayors have, the, the U.S. Conference yeah, yeah. of Cities, the, I mean, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, the National League of Cities, those yeah. kinds of things almost begged for the kind of cooperation that we're finally yeah. seeing. But, but see, without a doubt, but then there's, the, uh, there's a couple things, and I'll give you an example. We were doing a, a conference here in the city. Mayor Gregor out of Vancouver announced, talks about, it was about climate change, talked about the smart uh, LED lights and smart poles. I wrote that, as you know, my famous card. I wrote that down. And that became the basis of what we were doing for our climate change contribution, et cetera. When I brought together under the Chicago Climate Charter, it's now 82 cities, to have customized plans for climate change, given cities are a big contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, we didn't call the Secretary of State. None of the cities with, from overseas called the foreign ministers. Nobody got approval. Mayors just came, and it became probably the most significant contribution blueprint besides the Paris Agreement to implementation of a climate change policy. In the same way, Mary Hildago and I, because of her interest in the Seine River, my interest in the Chicago River and the Riverwalk, we had a conference here on cities and waterfronts as economic, ecological um, uh, engines of growth. And Paris, Milan, Mexico City, uh, Montreal, Chicago, Dallas, Buenos Aires, uh, there was also Cape Town, South Africa, Haifa, Israel. Mayors from all over came, and nobody asked the national governments or any international association. So it was ideas today move horizontally, they don't move vertically. And those are purviews that used to be only of the State Department or the national government, and today mayors are doing it unilaterally without their approval. Uh, and that tells you something different has happened. And then you get kind of a vacuum uh, when you look at Washington. For example, you talked about the Paris Accords. Mm-hmm. Well, the president pulled the U.S. Yep. out of the Paris Accords. and he, Look, the, he, the president pulled us out of the Paris Accords, but he hasn't stopped climate change. Okay? And so the only way you can deal with the kind of impact, and we're seeing it, as I talked about, and we can see in real time what's happening on our lakefront, we have to deal with this and make our own contribution. One of the things that we did in my tenure that changed for Chicago and had a national impact, we closed those two coal plants and shut them down. And they were a contributor to public health risk, but they were also a contributor to climate change contributions by the city that dramatically changed our uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the city. And I didn't ask for the national government to do it for us. We did it. And that used to be what the federal government did. Now. As somebody who's sat by the side of two presidents, I would prefer an active federal government. But Chicago's future can't be put on hold until there is one. And I, whether it was pre-K, free community college, closing two coal plants, dealing with you know, the issues of uh, food deserts in your communities and parts of your city, that means mayors are taking ever more increasing role and responsibility. So we've gone from the model city of Lyndon Johnson to the model nation based uh, on local politics and policy. But now it's one thing for cities to be stepping up where Washington has stepped back. Yeah. But it's another thing when you actually have the federal government working against cities. Very, very good point, Greg. Very good point. I mean, how how much of a challenge is that? And does even unity among cities uh, counter that? sufficiently well it's interesting so you'll see this 
I always refer to Chicago as a welcoming city, as a really, not a sanctuary city. That we welcomed immigrants from all parts of the world and all areas. If the court rules that the federal government can use burn grants against a quote-unquote sanctuary city, again, I want to say we called it welcoming, we'll see what that unity looks like of the cities that oppose the federal government. Are they willing to turn away that burn grant? And you are right. It's one thing to step back, and then there's another thing that's open hostility, whether it's on immigration, whether it's on climate change, whether it's on a whole host of other policies. So there's kind of the... I hate using this term because it's loaded from political history, benign neglect. And there's another one where there's actually all-out assault on urban America by an administration and using the powers of the federal government to actually uh, uh, hurt urban centers. But is that... And that's a different... Yeah. That's a different... It is a that total different beast, yes. But is that a beast that cities are even even have a chance of slaying uh, well let me give you one analysis i write about this in the book that's interesting at least i find it interesting is urban politics so the community block grant is the largest federal aid to cities local government chicago is somewhere between 65 and 70 million dollars a year under the community block grant when i created the neighborhood opportunity fund it was thought of as $15 million a year. That was as the downtown grew, it became the basis for seed capital for struggling neighborhoods on the south and west side. When I left, it was $170 million to $190 million over three years. A simple policy we developed locally to help us solve something locally had come to rival the largest federal program to local government in, our, in the country called the Block Grant. And so that tells you where not only the shift of power, but that when you're dealing with a federal government that is not interested almost to the point of uh, denial, what you have to do locally is solve that problem. Another example, closer to home to all of us, we took the summer jobs program for 14,500 kids up to 33,000 the federal support for those kids had diminished to only out of those 33,000 it dropped we'll wait till this goes by uh, <laughs> it dropped to about six seven hundred kids out of the 33,000 it basically the federal government just basically said we're not in the business anymore of summer jobs and I think we all know how important summer jobs are the first job you have is a defining role for you how important summer jobs are for the safety of our children, of having something to do during the summer, building their resume. I mean, we, I can go on and on to the additional benefits. But the federal government, AWOL. And that's open hostility, not just benign neglect. And not, but not to belabor the point uh, sure. for a minute more, but let's face it, when it comes to things like law enforcement mm -hmm. and education, yeah. um, there's just so far that local governments can go uh, to pick up the slack. I no, I mean, think. look, I mean, you need, you can't do it without the federal government. Um, there's no doubt about it. And, but I'll give you, I'll, let me put you in the mayor's chair. I believe that high, a high school degree is not sufficient. We had to drive our graduation rate, which we did to nearly 80% from the mid 50s. But I also knew you needed to do at least two more years. 
Now, with Janice and others, we transformed junior and senior year to college ready. 50% of our kids now graduate with college credit. That wasn't before. And we came up with the Chicago Star Scholarship. We had to find that, call it $12 million inside the community college budget. Other things got hurt because we made that a priority. Um, if we had a federal partner, A, we wouldn't have to pick between A versus B. But more importantly, we could have done it in a much more Tennessee which did it at the same time that Chicago did it. You went to a public high school, you got it in Tennessee. There was no grade point average. Now, I happen to think our BA average was the right way to go, but that's a philosophical debate. Not. I would love nothing more than to have a federal partner that says, you know, any city that adopts this policy, we're going to double the size of the Pell Grant. You don't even have to. If you adopt a free community college basis, we will give those kids Pell Plus. You know, just to, mm -hmm. I'm coming up with because in Chicago, unlike any other city that's replicated this, we give you tuition and books. So we, you know, not tuition, books and transportation, rather. But, you know, there's a partnership. OK, you guys are in. We'll incentivize you to do. So it's not just seven cities. This becomes 700 cities. You know, there's a lot of things the federal government can do, but there's no partnership. Nothing. You're listening to WBBM News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is Rahm Emanuel, the immediate former mayor of Chicago and the author of the book, The Nation City. And we are recording this at the Taylor Street Library and Apartments. Um, I want to sort of edge into politics a little bit more, but actually... I, does that mean how, I, that you just, nobody can see, but you just kind of moved on your chair by saying the word edge. Is this like, are we going up to our ankles or our knees in yeah, politics? We're, we're, we're going to go we're, for our ankles we're, right now. We're still on the shallow Excellent. end of the pool? Yeah, we're starting, but we're, we're continuing to walk. Uh, so, and, and that is, and I know you're going to disagree with this point. Cause I, I disagree. Because I, I read the book, okay. but, uh, or read part of the book. Um, recent history would suggest that, that governors have a better shot at uh, becoming presidents than mayors would. I mean, you know, presidents Reagan, Without a doubt. Reagan Carter, and Clinton come to mind. And um, Bush, 43. Right. Uh, so, but, so, do mayors come, I mean, what do they bring to the table that even makes them realistic candidates, or, or even hopeful candidates mm -hmm. for president. Well, first of all, you are right. I mean, look, there's simple history. Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, Reagan, Bush, 43, Clinton, Carter, all governors. Uh, it's the most constant kind of resume for the Oval Office, one-year change, etc. I, uh, what you look, though, today and the reason I think mayors are uh, both on policy and confidence, and one is the government that people rely on have confidence in today in a period of distrust of uh, government, by three to one is local government. It's closest to the way people live their lives and go about their lives. Number two, when, uh, and I've said it about, the, I've talked about this before, but when you think about what's tearing at the country, and manifesting this sense of alienation and dispiritedness. And I think about it manifested in kind of the deaths of despair, opiates, heroin, alcohol, suicide. That's about alienation. That's about not believing in yourself and not having a sense of belonging and a lack of confidence in a, not of a, in a future. And only mayors have the credibility 
to weave both through places of faith, houses of worship, community groups, not-for-profits, a sense of a community around our fellow lost souls. And I really think it's one of the bigger challenges we face as a country. And I don't think you can see that coming out of the Oval Office. It's just way too distant and, unfortunately, not interested. Um, and governors are not equipped to handle and have and They can deal with policy. But when you deal with alienation and dispiritedness and lack of confidence and you know, self, riddled with self-doubt, you need somebody that can actually be touched. And mayors have that unique um, presence. Uh, if you use what I also refer to in the book as what I call the soft power of the office. Um, now, conveniently, uh, a couple of mayors are, in fact, running for president. Uh, Timing's everything, correct? <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, but uh, so far, it seems almost no candidate has captured the excitement. Well, yeah. uh, and, and so mayors are otherwise. But, I mean, mayors get the rap of, well, you've just been a mayor. And that's been the... Well, actually, I, let me, uh, so let me now really disagree with you, okay? Yeah. And we have some empirical evidence here. You would, I think we both agree that uh, Mayor Pete didn't get the normal bounce you get out of Iowa because of what happened. True. His, his debate performance in New Hampshire, eh, was okay, not one of his best. Yet he comes within a point and a quarter of uh, Bernie Sanders, okay? Real, to, I mean, unbelievably close. And the only intervening event is Joe Biden runs this TV ad ridiculing cobblestones, street lights, pets. You know, I'm out solving Iran nuclear deals and climate change and the stimulus bill. I'm doing the presidential. And I think people looked at the ad and said, cobblestones, street lights? I, I, like, as the, to quote the governor of Michigan, just paid the damn roads. Okay, so I think actually it re rebounded to uh, Mayor Pete's benefit, because there's no other way to explain this incredible performance electorally the night of election in New Hampshire. He cut in, he almost overtook uh, Bernie Sanders, who was a, who's been basically in New Hampshire not only in 2016, he's been a neighbor of that state through his congressional and Senate years, 30 years. He was basically from New Hampshire, and Mayor Pete came within 1,000 votes of him, and the only thing that can explain it is what was supposed to be a hit on him became a justification for his candidacy, which is the hit by uh, Joe Biden in that ad, worked to, I think, Mayor Pete's advantage. And well, uh, what else do you explain? The mayor of London runs and becomes prime minister, and the first thing he does as prime minister, I want to build a train from London to the Midlands, a very mayor-like announcement. It wasn't like some big global trade conference or some. It's a mayor-like, and I, I think you have to think about where the people are and where the public is. They're looking for some block and tackle. They don't think the federal government today can organize a one-car parade, and given the national government's response right now to this pandemic, they may not be wrong. Local government, they have confidence in. It affects their lives. They can see it, they can touch it, and they can make a response to it. That tells you something. And it's not, look, how Grover Cleveland was the last mayor that was in president. Why do you have three ones, three mayors right now standing in the Democratic primary, and four governors ran, and they all had to drop out? Um, 
I, I do want to, uh, to ask you uh, about Bernie Sanders. You mentioned I mean, <laughs> you know, how close Pete Buttigieg is to him. Yeah. Let's talk about Bernie Sanders and the kind of excitement that he's generated, um, as he did four years ago. Uh, is that a, a good or a bad thing for the party when... He seems to be the one who. Well, first of all, gets you say I, I don't. I don't get. What do you mean generated? He he got sixty percent in twenty sixteen in New Hampshire, and he got twenty six percent in New Hampshire this time. Okay, the, all the other additional turnout, which was only eighteen percent above the twenty sixteen level, went to Amy and to Mayor Pete. Didn't go to him. So here's my thing, and I just. You've had six elections that Democrats have won nationally, Bill Clinton in ninety two and ninety six. Barack Obama in 08 and 2012, the midterms in 2006 and 2018. They're all from the same playbook. None of those are the Bernie Sanders playbook. It's basically a very big juggernaut between suburban and urban Democrats that perform. You win congressional districts, you win statewide with that model. And you win the presidency and not win the popular vote, but the electoral vote. That's the key here. All of a sudden, when our biggest task is taking Donald Trump out, who I think is really wrong for this moment in time, for our democracy, for a whole host of reasons. We're willing to risk it on a premise that we're going to have a turnout among young voters we've never had, a turnout among blue-collars we haven't seen, blue-collar Democrats since 1964, or the way I like to say it, uh, that there's 75 million Americans walking around saying, I didn't know I was a democratic socialist, but on second thought, I am. I don't believe that's going to happen. And my view is I don't want to risk when we have six successful models in the last 28 years and take it on a model that we don't need suburban voters, we don't need moderate voters, I can do it on a base turnout. That is exactly what Jeremy Corbyn thought of in England, and it was the worst performance for labor since World War II. Is the playing field too even on the Democratic side? I, I don't know that I've seen... I'm not, a, a, I have a view, but I'm not backing into that, <laughs> answering that question. Well, but, but I guess the, 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 Here's the, what the, I do the concept is, is, though, that people are staying undecided until the very end because you can look at each candidate and go, no. yeah, I like that, but I don't like this, I like them. Uh, well, there I, is a bit, they're evaluating viability and they find problems as quickly as they find what they like. Here's what yeah. I really think is the bigger problem. The internet fundraising has changed all this. And I re- know this from in 1992 when everybody in the primary thought Bill Clinton was over, our fundraising kept him alive. He lost four states before he started winning. Today, there's a number of candidates that have never even been first or second are staying in this process. They have a good debate performance, and the next morning on the internet, $5 million, $10 million, $15 million shows up, and so they're staying around the hoop. They have no reason to get out. They have no impetus to get out. Before, if you had been in Nevada, New Hampshire, and Iowa, third or fourth consistently, basta, you'd be over. Today you get to stay alive. And that's creating itself. So when you say it's a more level playing field, the internet as an instrument has changed the viability of a candidate's survivability. Now, I'm not sure they will change that somewhere in April you're going to get all of a sudden go from third and fourth, you'll be around to be first. But it's uh, people, by this point, now, we should be, by historical standards, three fewer candidates in the field. 
For, since you didn't back into the other question, let me just throw this one out there and see if you want to go near it. And no, I don't. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. But um, Mayor Mayor Bloomberg, uh, you in the book, he's very favorably portrayed in the book. He did, he did a good job as mayor. Uh, but are you are you leaning toward him as president? No. I think he did a good job as mayor, but he has not proven himself as a presidential candidate. I actually think campaigns prove something. And if you can't do the campaign, don't trust me. There's nothing about the Oval Office that gets easier. Nothing. So if you can't handle this, don't think that the Oval Office, you know, I hate when people say, oh, they're really, they would be a good president. No, you wouldn't. If you can't handle the campaign, you're not going to be a good president. Because here's the thing I always tell since we started off record talking about our children. <laughs> yes. This may say something about dinner conversation at the Emanuel home. But I always used to say, if you're, especially if you're mayor, governor, president, you have to be idealistic enough to know why you're doing what you're doing and then tough enough to get it done. If you can't handle the to and fro of a campaign, you're not going to handle the to and fro of the Oval Office. And if you don't know policy, you're not going to handle that office. And if you don't know politics, trust me, you're not going to handle that office. And when I say politics, I'm not just talking about the Hill. I'm talking about the country. And so... The campaign is a testing ground and should be. We could go on another half hour, and I was going to try and get you to uh, to uh, take back uh, the Congress for the, uh, the oh, uh, I mean the uh, Senate for the Democrats, but we don't have time. I would like to thank former Mayor Rahm Emanuel for spending this half hour with us. His book is called "The Nation City: Why Mayors Are Now Running the World," published by Knopf. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of the program. Or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. You can also find our podcast on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com.